there's an underappreciated emotional motivation um, in in games, especially among whales, and that's the idea of a provider. Um, if a lot of people in a group look up to the person at the top, who is quite literally just buying lots of items and consumables and things like that for their group, um, that's a real it's a real source for for revenue for a game, um, and I don't think that should be missed. It's not necessarily all about power scaling. Um, there's other emotional vectors that we can use um, to help make a game more sustainable. And then just reframing, you know, what a whale is. It's not necessarily somebody that's spending to get an advantage in the game. It's somebody that's spending to help support the game. And if you reframe it like that and you tell the consumers like, hey, the reason this person has all this cool stuff is because they're literally helping the game survive. Um, I think that's just a cool reframe. And I think that's unexplored territory right now um, in terms of messaging. Welcome to the Deus Ex Style Podcast. I'm your host, Kepler, and today we have a roundtable discussion about game economies. And I'm fortunate enough to be joined by three guests who are much more equipped than me to talk about this topic. Uh, so I'm sure we will get interesting insights out of the discussion. Um, so yeah, welcome, guys. Great to have you all together here. Um, maybe everyone can give like a first intro of themselves first, like one minute maximum. Um, and let's start with Nick, because you already know how it works. Yeah, sure. What's up, everybody? Uh, thanks for listening in today. My name is Nick Metzler. I'm a gaming tokenomics advisor um, for Shima Capital. Um, I'm a venture partner over there, and I assist their portfolio companies with uh, designing game tokenomics. Um, my background is in game design, but it's in game design from pretty much every medium you can imagine. So uh, I've done board games, I've done card games, I've done survivor challenges, escape rooms, uh, theme park ride gamification, uh, education <laughs> gamification, kind of like everything under the sun, basically. And the through line with all of that is a deep understanding of human behavior and incentives. Um, so that paired really, really nicely with crypto. Um, so I jumped into crypto and trying to help uh, help shape the industry. I, I think the, there's a lot of solutions and a lot of puzzle pieces that are scattered about, and it just takes a, a lot of people coming together and putting the pieces in the right places um, to help change this. And I'll uh, pass it over to Michael. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm Michael, uh, based in Japan, originally from Germany. I'm actually in Germany right now at my parents' place. Um, yeah, I've been full-time working on blockchain games since early 2019. Um, so I studied economics, but then later learned programming. And I, I worked as an engineer at uh, a company in Japan called Double Jump Tokyo. We built a game called My Crypto Heroes, where I worked as an engineer, but then later on also helping with uh, the game economy and ecosystem design because I, I had interest because of my you know, economics background. Um, and I did that until early 2021. Um, and then 2021, I did some advisory uh, for Yield Guild Games, helping with tokenomics in the early days. Uh, then I worked with Blackpool Finance, which is another um, you know blockchain gaming DAO. Um, was there on the investment side, but also helped a bit on like building the token and the staking and all that. Um, and then end of 2021, I wanted to go back to building games. 
because there's so much attention and money in this space, but still no good games. So I joined uh, Mighty Bear Games, which I've been now for over one and a half years now. Um, basically joined as the Web3 lead, helping the company move from Web2 to Web3. And I'm basically like the, the product owner for anything that touches Web3. Uh, sadly, don't program anymore, but basically you know, helping the company make sense of this space and building Mighty Action Heroes, which is our first blockchain game. Yeah, passing over to Heimdall. Hey guys, I'm Heimdall. I work at Citadel. Uh, it's an on-chain space game. Uh, I come uh, from a risk analysis background. I got back into the NFT scene in October of 2021. I saw a lot of issues uh, with the economics design of different games, specifically on-chain games. Uh, they had a lot of value leakage, uh, suffering from like tragedy of common scenarios. So my whole goal there was just to solve that issue. Uh, I submitted that idea to Citadel. They liked the idea and they brought me on the team and I've been working there for the last 20 months or so, uh, creating <laughs> a economically robust governance, heavy on-chain game in space. Cool. So yeah, we have a lot of different backgrounds. So I guess to kick things off would be helpful for the viewers to understand like where your viewpoints are coming from. So maybe you can have like in, in one sentence or two sentences, share your philosophy of how you think about game economy design. So for example, for me, I also have like an economics background. So it would be looking more behavioral economics rather than something like finance, for example. And then just thinking about, okay, if I think about like crypto economies, it's very much an open market. So we have like a financial layer. So we should accept that and, and just like, yeah, manage it basically. So yeah, maybe what's like your design philosophy, basically. Um, let's start with Nick again. Yeah, sure. Um, design philosophy for me has really focused on what are the differences between crypto gaming and every other type of gaming. I find that that mindset really helps me dial into what makes, you know, these games exciting or fun or unique. Um, and so. Uh, a lot of that has also developed from the misconceptions that the space has. So if I was to summarize it in like one or two sentences, it would be money doesn't come from thin air. Uh, you need more money coming in than coming out and supply is a function of demand and not the other way around. Um, and if there is, uh, if something can happen, it probably will happen. Um, and then if somebody can repeat an action and earn value from it, that action will be repeated until it reaches the market rate, uh, which is typically zero. So I would say that those are kind of my guiding principles uh, in this space. Guess I go next. Uh, there are a lot of nuggets in there. So let's see if I can add anything to that. Um, yeah, my philosophy, just you know, observing games in the last three years uh, or four years in the space. Uh, is that game ecosystems, they need to be sustainable. And my definition of sustainable is that it doesn't need or shouldn't need new users to join in to sustain the prices and sustain the economy. So I think the economy ideally should be like self-sustaining with the same amount of users. Um, we've seen games that are kind of like very reliant on new folks entering the ecosystem or you know buying NFTs. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's very sustainable. I think we need to move away from these things. Uh, yeah. That's my philosophy in one sentence. Uh, I would say our philosophy is pretty simple. Uh, it's protect the player at all costs. Uh, purely, you want to design an economy with intrinsic value, economic stability, 
uh, players can be confident in the value of their assets. Uh, and every thing you add to the economy should be designed with the, the best interests of the player in mind. Okay, already like we can build on a lot of these nuggets you dropped. So um, let's maybe start with like the first one, which Nick mentioned that basically, like, yeah, he's looking at the difference between like traditional games and Web3 games. So I think like one part of it would also be looking at okay, what kind of games do you think lend themselves towards adding crypto elements? I like, guess there something that you feel like, okay, this is easier to build a sustainable economy with. So for example, if we have like PVP games, right, it acts it's like a zero sum action where you can have basically a token sync in a way, um, or you could say, okay, if we have a lot of social gameplay that this can motivate people to spend for social status within their guild. And then you can have like wars between guilds that also leads to spending. So yeah, anything you, you can share here, like what you observed or what you're thinking about right now, like, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'll touch on one thing for PvP and skill-based gameplay, and then I'll, uh, I'll pass it over to Heimdall, because I think um, something I'm going to say about UGC is really is going to resonate with him. Um, so uh, a big trend that I've seen in, in Web3 Gaming is a big focus on PvP because it's a zero-sum game. So you can bet against each other and the other player, whoever wins will get the, the pot or rewarding people at the highest echelons of the, of the leaderboard. Uh, while this is economically sustainable, I don't know if that this is like game-wise sustainable. And the reason is if you rewarding, say the top 10% of players, if you're not in the top 10% of players and you don't feel like you can get in the top 10% of players, um, do you churn out? because you're consistently having to pay into it. And if you don't feel like you can you know, get up, maybe you do turn out. And that's expensive from a UA perspective. Um, and in a situation like this, that pool gets ever smaller and the game eventually like implodes on itself because there's not enough players to sustain it. And I'm worried that a over-focus on pure skill-based uh, rewarding will lead to that future. Um, but when I'm thinking about the differences between say, traditional games and where web three games can really shine. One of the aspects that I think really sticks out is the potential for UGC, as well as incentivization of UGC and curation of UGC. Um, the idea that you can have lots of people all working together on a decentralized base that are increasing the network effects of the game, each adding to the game, maybe plugging in new mods, testing it out, having a possibility of getting paid for it. And I think that really leads into the thesis of autonomous worlds. And that's where I'm going to pass it off to Heimdall. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. You do see in the Web2 space, I mean, it's there There are good monetization models to reward creators, but obviously that's really improved in the Web3 space. Um, people can actually have real ownership of their different mods. Uh, I mean, just think back to uh, game games like Warcraft 3 that had the Warcraft 3 map editor, I'm sure you know, everyone here messed with that when they were kids. Uh, a lot of the best game models came out of that, that uh, map creator, right? You know, we had Dota, uh, we had, and then uh, say uh, Daisy, you know, created the Battle Royale kind of mod meta. Uh, in Web3 space, I mean, 
allowing for that kind of UGC, that kind of mod creation, and then for players to actually own that and to you know monetize that and uh, create opportunity uh, for themselves, uh, I think is is really where you get this economic scaling, similar to you know a real real world economy rather than these uh, kind of closed economies from the Web two space. Uh, I do think high skill cap games uh, will do really well uh, in the Web3 space because uh, it allows for more economic mobility. Uh, I think that that's a, actually a, an issue that you were kind of referencing. Like leaderboard based rewards definitely uh, can cause issues uh, because that, that creates an accumulation of rewards towards the top for sure. Uh, but allowing for a high skill cap can lead to more economic mobility where there's not so much power in uh, the amount of, there's not so much of a uh, accumulation in the power that players can purchase uh, for different things. Uh, so more skill, less power in purchase power, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I'll pass it off to Michael. Yeah, I, th I think UCG is, is pretty powerful in Web3. I think, I, you know, I, I personally want to bring it back to like the PvP angle because this is what we're building at Mighty Action Heroes. Uh, actually, Nick, to your point, I actually agree with you that just concentrating the rewards on the top 10% is is discouraging, I would say, for the other 90%. So I think you need to have different kind of roles and, and player types in the ecosystem that you're building. So the, you know, competitive players, we call them warriors. And that, that term was, was stolen from the My Crypto Heroes uh, days. But basically, those folks want to compete. They want to win. That's what they want. Um, yes, they care about the rewards, but they also care about the fame, the recognition. Um, and uh, and then you have like the, the other folks that are like to just grind the game and play. Uh, we call them farmers. So they just like make sure that the, the warriors have enough resources and they might play PvP. They might do like weekly, daily quests to get some rewards and then sell this to the other warriors. So they care about other things. Um, but just kind of like as an example, how how League of Legends is kind of structured, like you know, also in, in looking at esports and how that works, is like the, the game inherently is fun. People like, like players like to play it, and if you compete in the let's say top, I think one percent or even like zero point five percent, I think, uh, then you can be in an esports team and actually earn by salaries. But I think in Web three, you earn by you know getting heroes, getting weapons that you can uh, trade. So I think like I'm, I like the financialization in games. Um, that's why I'm in the space. But I think hyper-financialization is a bit tricky. I think the games need to be inherently fun. And then you add like a, a pretty interesting, exciting like financial layer on top of it. And I think like PvP heavy games have this strength of like you have trading of the farmers giving things to like the warriors and the warriors who just wanna just keep spending money to be on top of the leaderboards. Um yeah, and but I think also Nick to your point, I think like guild versus guild gameplay is pretty interesting. Then it goes into like recognition and uh, being in a community, and then I think whales just like to be respected in their in their guild and and keep spending. Um, but th that's I still haven't seen that done well in games yet. Although I think to some extent in like axes with scholarships and and these skills, um, but I think that will also come. Yeah, something I want to throw in there just as a, a nice tip to, to listeners. The there's an underappreciated emotional motivation um, in in games, especially among whales, and that's the idea of a provider. Um, if a lot of people in a group look up to the person at the top who is quite literally just buying lots of items and consumables and things like that for their group, um, that's a real that's a real source for for revenue for a game. Um, and I don't think that should be missed. 
It's not necessarily all about power scaling. Um, there's other emotional vectors that we can use um, to help make a game more sustainable. And then just reframing, you know, what a whale is. It's not necessarily somebody that's spending to get an advantage in the game. It's somebody that's spending to help support the game. And if you reframe it like that and you tell the consumers like, hey, the reason this person has all this cool stuff is because they're literally helping the game survive. Um, I think that's just a cool reframe. And I think that's unexplored territory right now um, in terms of messaging. I would agree with you there. I think there's been a lot of mislabeling around different uh, player archetypes. Like I think we hear a lot in the Web3 space about value extractors or speculators. I think everybody that's in the Web3 space is a speculator. We're even speculators. To some extent, we're speculating that <laughs> blockchain games are going to succeed, right? Uh, I just, I, I don't, I think like villainizing certain player archetypes is a super, you know, like, oh, the whales are, you know, this or that. Or, uh, I think if you're calling people value extractors, you just haven't designed the economy that well. Um, but that's just my opinion. Quick, uh, quick yeah. question before we continue, Andal. Um, and for you, Michael, too, speculation in games, um, speculators in games, is that a good thing? Should we, you know, try to have that in there? Or should we try to create an economy that has minimal speculation? I know this is a bit of a spectrum, but I'm curious to get your guys' take on it. I'm very much on the keep speculation inside the game point. Yeah, I think it comes back to what's entertaining for the players. And I think for the Web3 audience, speculation is entertaining. Uh, it doesn't need to be like financial speculation, um, although I think that's a big mm. part of it. I think it can be also like, does the meta change? That could be speculation. If there's a next patch coming up, like how does that shift the, the meta and the builds that I'm using? Um, and some traders like to speculate on these things, like say, oh, this specific hero has been quite weak. Maybe it gets buffed. Maybe I just pile up this hero. Um, I mean, that's... I don't know, just zooming out, right? It's a crypt all of crypto is like a PvP game. And I think folks are speculating like which current cycle are we in? Is it like uh, I don't know, altcoin cycle? We're now in like hamster racing, animal racing cycle, and then goes back to like shit coins, uh, then back to like NFTs, back to games, like whatever the narrative currently is. So I think I, I don't know, it's just very entertaining. You know, if you just keep trading, you're on Twitter, you're on Discord, like that's that's the real metaverse for me. And I think like speculation drives a lot of the fun. Um, not necessarily just financial speculation. It's just, uh, it's just entertainment in my opinion. Yeah. I've said the, I've said the same thing. Like this is the metaverse actually we're, we're all living in it. It's all the different social media sites connected together. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think speculators are good, uh, financial. And, uh, like, like you said, Michael, I think that's a great point. Uh, meta speculators, uh, maybe people, uh, think something will be balanced in the future and they'll start buying up some particular item or something like that, you know? Uh, I mean, that kind of thing happened in EVE where they made a balanced decision based on, uh, I think it was like missiles or something like that versus torpedoes. And it just tanked the market in, in torpedoes, I think. Uh, and so some people were able to like short that. Uh, uh, I think allowing for speculation and uh, integrating it, and actually you can even monetize speculation a little bit. Uh, if you have an asset uh, that has some sort of intrinsic value, Maybe this will be meandering a bit too much, but uh, you can monetize speculation through royalties on secondary, essentially, uh, and drive more value towards like a game treasury, uh, which reflects more value back to the economy overall. Uh, or just having real financial markets in your game, uh, just like Eve. There's some players who who sit in the station all day and just trade items back and forth, you know, and that's their fun. They love to find 
uh, market inefficiencies, inefficiencies, right? Um, so yeah, that would be. You know, I think you bring up a really good point. Find their fun. It's it's not like everybody's fun is the same thing. And I think that's another big misconception is like, oh, we need to make fun games. It's like, okay, well, fun for who? Um, you know, like fun is a subjective experience. Some people really like Cards Against Humanity. Some people really like, you know, drama shows, right? Like everybody's type of fun is different. And I think Web3 brings in a new category of gamers, a new type of fun. Um, it's not going to appeal to everybody. And I, I think we need to be comfortable with that fact. It's like, yeah, the market size is 3 billion gamers, but how many really want that financial layer? I would say probably not all 3 billion of them, but there's probably a subset and maybe some people who weren't in that original 3 billion that we can bring in. Um, it may make a completely different market. And I think with every different type of medium of gaming, you see different types of people engaging with it. And I don't think we should forget that. And I guess it, it also depends on if we say, okay, speculators, they're good in the game when they have like a certain weight, like it's a certain percentage of the overall players, right? So we can like model that and control it to, to some degree at least. Because like in the real world, we also have speculation, right? And it doesn't destroy like our whole economy. So more of like accepting that there will be speculation, I guess like, yeah, just seeing, okay, what kind of fun do they get out of the speculation? How do we deal with it? And then how we monetize it in the end? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple of good points in there. So. Let's move on to the next topic. I think like one part that we observed with a lot of the first generation games was basically hyperinflation, right? Um, that's the first thing to to get right, in my opinion. So yeah, could you just share like your opinion on what are like certain levers that you can use, like either on the tap side or on the sync side, like how would you go about like balancing that better than it has been before? Yeah, uh, I guess I'll I guess I'll start. I think it's important to understand why inflation was a thing in the first place, um, and I think a lot of that was left over from uh, DeFi and trying to combine it with Web two mindset. So the Axie Infinity model, the dual token model, really stemmed from the idea that we were going to do a premium currency and soft currency. And soft currency is typically something you give out like in mass, right? Um, and so they made both of those tokens. And the whole mindset of, of DeFi was that you, you give out more and more tokens to increase decentralization, gain more adoption, because more people having more things would be beneficial. Um, and I think a lot of people ended up copying that same model across multiple different games, even though it didn't necessarily work. Um, but I would say that the inflation component served a, a few important pieces. Number one, it allowed for greater access. Lots of people could you know, then own the axes, the NFTs, and more people could have access to the token, right? Especially if it was being given out for free. Of course, people would want to get something if it's given out for free, um, especially if it has value. And I think it was met first as a, a piece for adoption. And it wasn't really focused on trying to retain as much value inside the token or the NFTs. I think a big piece of that mentality has shifted, or at least I hope has shifted. Um, and I guess with that background, that backdrop, it it helps to elicit what the new levers are for helping control that. And so uh, I would say this is a, a big problem of distribution. And how do you distribute? And in what format do you distribute? And who 
are you distributing to? Um, so it's not necessarily an inflation problem to me. It's more of a, a question of distribution and how do you manage supply? I don't know if anybody wants to touch that or just kind of their own levers. Yeah, no, I think I think you're you know uh, right on point here. I think most of it was really user acquisition. I think for Axie and for Stepin, it's like UA. Um, they, I mean, DeFi, they call the flywheel. It's just like more folks coming in, buying more, let's say, axes that brings up the demand of SLP, that puts the SLP price up, that increases demand for for axes and so on, and just like spirals up. Um, it, it's obviously great for the narrative and bringing people in. Um, but I think if it spirals out of control and you don't add actual consumption, then this is when the inflation kicks in. And I think Stepin, they understood this. They tried to do it. Um, they thought they had more time to add like proper sinks to it. And I think they were talking about like buying actual sneakers from like Adidas, Nike uh, with the currency and then kind of get them out of circulation. Um, but I think they hit that tipping point like two or three months before they could actually ship this. So I think timing that that inflation is is really hard as well. Um, and as, as Nick said, like inflation is not necessarily a bad thing. Like if you can get the you know assets at a good price to a bigger audience and you kind of control that inflation and it's also communicated and priced in into the assets, I think it's fine. But I think if, if the entire game just runs on this flywheel and you know it's flying up and then it's also flying down because those flywheels, they can like spiral down really fast out of control. Um, and then you have a lot of users that bought the top, they're upset. Um, and they also, you know, trusted the team that the prices will stay there and they invested more than they should have and then they get upset, uh, rightfully so, and then they churn and never come back. Um, so I think that's something we also, you know, as game developers have to uh, kind of think about. Like, I think we need to protect the users and not, like, build uh, over-financialized systems. I think the, the assets that we create, um, at least that's what we approach this in our game, is that uh, assets should be, like, you should be able to afford them um, yes, they should be designed in a way that if if there's more demand for those assets, the price go, goes up, but not designed in a way like, oh, they can go easily 100x within a week and then, you know, drop down another 90% within another week. I think that's just like too stressful for the average user. And that's not what we want to, that's not the financial stress you want to give our, our players. Um, yeah. And then there's the whole conversation of, you know, faucets and sinks and net positive versus net negative things. I think that's a whole different episode, but just in short, I think you need to differentiate between sinks that are like, uh, you know, indirect investments. So I think like spending SLP to breed another Axie to get more SLP is just leads to inflation, like a delayed inflation. So it's like a short-term sink, but like long-term inflation. Um, and consumption is is the actual thing that you want. And consumption in terms of like, I spend some currency for fun and just get some emotional returns or I can save time in the game. Like those are the better sinks, uh, but those are much harder to implement. Um, yeah, so I went a bit on a tangent here, but this is kind of like my, my two cents for this. Heimdall, do you have any, any thoughts on, on any of that? Yeah. I mean, Axie is a great example of like explosive, uh, population growth. Uh, I think we take a little bit different approach, uh, to not allowing that. Uh, I think that a measured population growth is probably better for an open economy. Uh, I mean, that's, that's typically how it happened, uh, how it works in the real world. Uh, if you kind of, if you have like 10,000% player growth, you're going to have issues with inflation infrastructure, which would be like your liquidity pools, all kinds of things are going to be at haywire, especially if you haven't had a uh, suitable time to balance the economy before that happens, uh, which happened with Axie. Uh, so I think a measured player growth strategy is probably 
easier to manage, uh, better for the players. Uh, you don't get a lot of those people who are unhappy that, you know, something was $150 and now it's $10 or whatever it's at. But uh, yeah, and it gives you time to work things out as you go along. You know, you don't have new country, new states, you know, showing up in the United States overnight and there's nothing there to support them. Uh, so um, uh, a couple of things I would touch on too is just avoiding uh, frictionless earning, which I think Nick touched on in his intro. Uh, avoiding frivolous earning. So for menial tasks, you shouldn't be handing out a soft currency for anything that a player does. Uh, and as far as sinks go, I think uh, ob obligatory spending uh, is a really good thing. Uh, so this could be uh, cost to travel across the map, repair costs, uh, taxes on marketplaces. Um, so you're just sinking currency. Um, and then overall, I think you want some kind of competitive sinks. So competitive dynamic sinks uh, is what I like to call uh, basically auctions. Uh, these are things that can come into the economy that players desire uh, and that they allow for a percentage of tokens to leave the market and therefore the supply can be kind of elastic of the token, uh, allowing it to expand and contract as much as needed uh, to stabilize the currency. One of the things that I was um, considering when you were saying a, a measured increase in player amount, are you saying that, you know, if there's an uptick in player uh, behavior, you would then increase dynamically like the inflation rate or the amount of NFTs that are available to purchase because of the rising amount of players in the ecosystem? Yeah. So uh, if you gate your uh, player base through like an NFT, let's say, um, this is one way that you can monetize demand or speculative demand too, uh, because uh, if people are really trying to get into your game, the value of the assets will go up. Uh, therefore, you'll drive more royalty revenue back to the treasury. Uh, and you can increase the new NFT, say, release at an auction uh, to increase if you need to, to allow more players into the game to reduce the value of the, the NFT, say, to stabilize it, uh, you know. But uh, Essentially, if you're just letting anybody join the game, um, you're kind of reducing demand overall uh, for the economy. Uh, and you also run into issues with like the free rider problem, uh, which is people don't really have a stake in the game. They just are there to, like some people say, extract uh, to take away. Um, and uh, really, these Web3 economies are all shared resources. Like we share the game. We're kind of all part of the game. We want to be, uh, you know, owners in the game. Uh, so if you have people coming in for free and taking from the game, uh, that's that can be a huge issue. I mean, even in uh, real world economies, that can be an issue, so. Would you say that like working on an on-chain game, this influences how you think about the economy? So that you say, okay, like it's harder to control at a later point. Um, so we need to make sure to build it like slowly and correctly from the start? Uh, well, we use actually upgradable contracts. Um, so we can, through governance, we can update the game state if we need to. Uh, and that's just, you know, based on players voting to put those changes through. Uh, so we can still change things after launch. Um, I think the thing is letting the player base size run get you know run away inflation that's where you run into issues like such as axie where you just haven't balanced thing, things faucets you know sinks in a way 
that could allow for such a population. So doing it slower and measured is, is probably a better approach. I think one of the tricky bits is even after you scale up effectively, um, you need to also be able to scale down effectively. And that's a much more difficult problem because it's, it's easy to get things out. It's easy to give things out. The question mark of how to get things out of the economy when uh, you know NFTs and tokens are owned by somebody else. You can't just like have it burn. Um, you have to get them to spend it uh, or get rid of the asset in some way and then increase potentially a, a burn percentage on each part of those transactions to help suck the excess supply out. Um, I think designing something like that effectively is the tricky challenge. Yeah, I think what, yeah. what, you, what you're hinting at is um, like if you scale up the NFTs based on the players coming in and you have a lot of players coming in and you scale up the NFTs and then all the players are leaving again, you still have all those NFTs in circulation. So what do you do with those? Right. So I think like we've thought a lot about like dynamic supply of, of these assets and it's hard. Like I think the way we approach this is kind of like from a season to season basis. So like our season is let's say six weeks or so. So it's kind of like more of a, um, you know, careful calculation of like how much we increase the NFTs the next season. Um, so if there's like explosive growth, maybe you just don't take that growth at face value. We look at like retention and kind of estimate how many of those folks will be around for the next, you know, year or two, uh, if you can even do that that math, but at least for the next few months, right? Um, yeah, so that, I think that's also a really good point. Like some people think, okay, dynamic supply of NFTs is the, the really good answer to all these problems, but they bring all sort of other problems with it. Same goes for like fixed supply, also really hard. Because if you have fixed supply and you all of a sudden have a lot of users coming in, then the prices of NFTs become too high and that increases, like that's like a barrier for entry for a lot of folks if the prices become too high. But the ones that are sitting on the NFTs, they like are excited about it because they can make money. Um, but at some point, other folks don't come in. So long-term, it actually hurts the project, I think. And even the players that sit on the NFTs. So um, yeah, yeah, I think that's also really think, interesting to think, think about bring up a really good point about seasonal NFTs. And I think that's kind of where the meta is going to go, in my opinion, where you get ever increasing amounts of NFTs, but maybe not all of them are valuable. Um, you know, it's specific seasons or specific ones. And I think that's how you solve the problem of inaccessibility. I don't know if you necessarily want to dilute the price of high value NFTs because then you just piss everybody off. Um, but if you come in for accessibility in a different way through different sets, different interactions of different seasons, for example, I think that is something that can work long-term. Um, yes. So, I mean, yeah, we have a little bit of a different model, which is uh, kind of different from how everybody else does it. Cause we have like a full ownership model and, and we use what, what would be called in, um, the real world is like a reserve model, right? Uh, so we have like a hundred percent reserve. And we stabilize. We we attempt to stabilize the NFT prices actually, rather than let them be speculative. So you know the idea uh, behind NFTs is that they're they're governance of the protocol. They're fully owned by the players. The protocol is fully owned by the players. Uh, all the revenue is mostly owned by the players. And actually, they can remove our our small percent of royalties if they want to, uh, if we're not doing a good job. Uh, so it gives like a full agency to the player base, like full ownership. I don't, I don't think. And so with that, you get, I think a lot more of the value of the treasury, let's say attributed to the value of the NFT. And uh, basically what we attempt to do is 
based on revenue to the treasury and the player base growth and stuff like that, we attempt to stabilize the NFT increase. Therefore, we're not trying to dilute the price. Uh, and that also serves to drive demand for the token because the only way to get the new issuances is uh, to bid on it in our auction. Um, so that's our main, actually main sink in the game. Is that auction similar to like a bonding curve or curious about no. the auction mechanic? The auction itself is a bit of a game, actually. It's pretty fun. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess it depends on what your definition of fun is. Um, but it, it's a it's a blind uh, uniform auction. Uh, so uniform auction is where all players who win the auction pay the same price. Uh, so if there's 10 NFTs uh, released at the auction, and if I'm the biggest bidder and I bid a thousand tokens, but you know the last winning bidder, the tenth winning bidder uh, bids a hundred tokens, everybody pays a hundred, and the rest are reverted. Now we obfuscate the bids by uh, doing what's called a deposit uh, sealed bid uh, auction. Uh, so players can deposit tokens at the auction, which obfuscates the bids that they submit from those deposited tokens. Uh, and this makes it sort of like a uh, like a, maybe like a poker type game where people are bluffing that they might bid 10,000 tokens, but they really only bid 1,000 tokens. And we've created a reward model out of this auction. Uh, so the more the tokens that you bid get taxed and that gets sent to a reward pool. And those reward pool uh, tokens get redistributed back to the depositors based on uh, the size of their deposits. So it, it incentivizes people to deposit a lot of tokens at the auction uh, to make it hyper competitive uh, and make it like a, a really uh, interesting bluffing kind of game. Uh, so it's not just like some frictionless I bid, I win the, the NFT just because I bid more than the other people. It's, it's sort of like a little bit of a mind game. Uh, it's fun, it's randomized uh, rewards so you can get any random ship. Uh, it could be a one of one could be anything. It's just like the original NFT mint. So it's a little bit, I wouldn't call it a loot box, but uh, it's it should be a fun in a sense because a player could get any kind of ship. You know, it's not just a standard ship or anything like that. It's a pretty sharp mechanic. I like it. And I, I guess like back to your initial question, right? Like what's fun? I, I, I bet like that auction folks in your game probably get super excited about the auction and the outcome and just the whole you know, game theory of this. Um, so, you know, it's perfect. Yeah, uh, I agree that it's really cool design. Um, so I guess, yeah, we, we touched on other things here. So let me try to recap a little bit. Um, so basically what we have is, um, first of course, is the, the supply and the distribution of it. And then we have to find consumption things, right? Um, and I guess like, if we talk about scaling down NFT supply related to it is also like, how do the NFTs like in the economy, should they capture value? Like, do you want them to increase in value or do, they, do you want to basically cap the ROI on them, right? Um, so maybe you, you have some thoughts around that, like what's your philosophy here? And maybe like, if you're like planning to have value accrual I guess I could start here. Um, just as like a simple model, um, what we've done at, at My Crypto Heroes, the previous game that I worked at. Um, so it's basically the 
um, the heroes themselves. So basically you need a hero to go on the quest, right? And every hero has a stamina system. So you can, let's say, do four quests a day. Uh, every quest has a chance to drop a certain we weapon. Um, sometimes it's an off-chain weapon. Sometimes it's an on-chain weapon. Um, and if it's an on-chain you know, NFT weapon, you can you can earn and you can sell that that weapon. And that was kind of like the, the whole model. So the thinking was kind of like, okay, I buy a hero and the hero has kind of like an expected cash flow, so to speak, in like very financialized terms of like future weapon drops in these quests. So then if you know, okay, every month I can make, let's say 0.2 ETH uh, in, in weapon drops, uh, that hero is priced, let's say, for example, like at, I don't know, 3 ETH or 4 ETH. So it's kind of like a net present value of like, you know, your future estimates. Um, but the hero itself, like, is going down in value over time because it's also going to be more heroes in circulation. It's, the weapons are also going down over time because there's like more weapons in circulation. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like a race against inflation, if that makes sense. So you just need to make sure you, you consistently grind every day to like get these rewards um to to kind of you know capture the value of the hero and kind of sell these things um that that was like really well perceived back then but i would also say uh it, it just led to inflation of weapons and then weapons just went to near zero kind of just kind of like share a bit of you know the learnings of like of like that ecosystem uh so the weapons just like i mean they didn't go to zero but like you know just gravitated towards zero like similar to slp i would say um and then if the you know expected value of the the weapons you know the the rewards go near zero then the value of the heroes also go down because you know if i can't earn anything why would i need to hold a hero that's so expensive um so that kind of like that kind of thinking of saying okay you have this how do i say like obligation to keep farming to justify the value of your heroes um it's just like a times raise against inflation and i think that's really really hard um and i think I would say a lot of NFT games are probably still that way, where like the only way to, or the, the biggest motivation to keep playing is to just like earn money. Um, and I need to play fast and I need to play regularly to kind of like get my ROI. Um, and I think the industry is kind of like moving away from these things um, more towards like, okay, I actually enjoy the game. I want to have fun with the game. Um, and like ideally, okay, I have fun, but if I play really, really well, or I have like expensive heroes and play really, really well, um, I can get some rewards. Um, and that should not be, how do I say, it should not be such a um, linear thinking of, you know, if I if I play every single day, I can make more money. Um, I think it's more different of like, I like the game, I play the game, if I get an NFT, um, that's a nice bonus of it. And it's like maybe like a rare NFT that's like legendary that other people are going to buy from me. But I think um, at least that's what we're looking at Mighty Action Heroes now. It's like we want to move away from this hyper-financialized thinking and kind of go towards like a more sustainable, you know, I play the game because I enjoy it. Plus this, like this economy layer that I also enjoy with like trading and crafting and all these things. Um, so, you know, just to answer the question, like what is better? I think it really depends on the game. If you want to cap the the ROI of the of the assets or if you don't. Um, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's more like... Um, you know, the gameplay is a bit detached from like how much you can earn. Um, and if you play really, really well, then you should earn more than, than folks that are in the middle of the pack. That's kind of like how we see it. Um, yeah, just curious to hear like Nick Heimdall, if you have any any stories or any like uh, takeaways from projects that you've worked on or maybe, you know, Heimdall, what you're currently building, like how you approach this. Yeah, I can, uh, I can talk quickly. Uh, I. That was that's interesting that you talked about the the item stuff uh, with the the inflating supply because 
I've, I've seen some other projects too, like other NFT projects that just have like a million NFT swords and stuff. And there's just so many of them. It's like their collection is crazy bloated. Uh, that That's like one of those things where it's like good to have a way to like sync those, those two, right? Maybe salvage them or use them for something, some other use case in the game. Uh, as far as value pool goes in our game, uh, everything accrues basically to the NFTs. Uh, that we designed that so that like the players basically, you know, own the ecosystem, like I said before. Uh, so the royalties are accruing to the NFTs, um, to the treasury. Uh, we kind of designed the model similar to like nouns. Uh, if, if you know, like nouns, they have, they're these generative uh, pixel uh, avatars uh, and they have one that gets sold every day at an auction. Uh, and you can think of that auction as sort of like the engine for their protocol that's accruing value to their treasury. Uh, and I think they're selling for 32 ETH every single day, uh, st still to this day. Uh, and that's partly due to the 28,000 ETH that they have in their treasury. Uh, that value reflects back on the NFTs and therefore every, every day people are like obligated to bid on these essentially. Uh, and so that was kind of the kernel of the idea for our auction mechanic, uh, except we decided to drive the value towards the the game token uh, instead of uh, nowhere. Uh, but so the auction works as an engine and then we're adding another engine in the game. Uh, the game is another way to spin up the economic velocity essentially. And so more value accrual um, to the NFTs over time. And the NFTs you need to actually play the game and get the token. Uh, the token's distributed uh, meritocratically. So like you need to have skill, you need to input activity, uh, you need to take risk. Right, uh, you can burn your NFT in the game. Um, so we wanted to emulate, in some sense, like real-world competition. Uh, you know, uh, players should have a lot of skill. They should have a lot of strategy. Uh, they should. The more active players should be rewarded more. I mean, they're playing more, right? Uh, the players should take more risks, just like in real life. If you're an entrepreneur, you get rewarded more, right? You might actually, <laughs> you know, you might fail, right? Uh, but you know, if you succeed, you get rewarded a lot. So uh, we we're just we tried to emulate a lot of that stuff uh, with the game as best we could. For me, I'm much more focused on using tokens and NFTs as a vector for network effect growth. Um, so I'm not necessarily focused on rewarding players for just playing the game. I want to reward streamers for streaming the game, um, helping lower UA costs and things like that, or um, incentivizing people effectively to develop and then curate really good UGC content, because when that is created, the game itself, you know, will create more demand, um, and demand brings in, you know, revenue. And I think the revenue piece is important um, for anything to have value. It needs to have some sort of revenue helping back it, um, or else it is just pure speculation and just what everybody determines is a fair price or you know, an appropriate price for trading on it. Um, so I think uh, having a, a focus on where is the m new money going to be coming from and how is that new money going to be sustainably produced um, in the ecosystem and, and why, I think that's the my main focus for value accrual. It's not necessarily value accruing to the NFTs or the token itself. It's more how is the, the game ecosystem gaining value over time and then where is that value being distributed um 
maybe it's accruing to the token in the form of you know purchasing the token on on the open market burning it for example um or it's giving out dividends um i'm not necessarily saying that any of these are you know um uh, i'm not a lawyer not a financial advisor either I, I assume that you know we have to say that every single time but um these are just methods for distributing the value back to uh, the people in the ecosystem and so it's not necessarily about value rule it's more where is the value coming from and then where does it go to and i guess that is the definition of value rule <laughs> i think it's also like how do you bridge the value where you know where it cruise and where people receive it like the way we look at this from our you know more casual game perspective is that we have three users but we will also have web two users and the question is like how do you bridge like both, but also in terms of like just value accrual and 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 these things. And again, this is not legal advice, but you know, you need to be very careful with passive income and dividends and, and staking and all these things. And uh the way we think about it is like we have a, an ecosystem NFT that kind of spans across the whole ecosystem. Uh we will also have an ecosystem token eventually. Um, and we need to think like how do we give value to the holders of of those tokens? And we have a mechanism. Currently in the, the mighty net is like the ecosystem that we're building. Uh, and in the mighty net, you can kind of like uh, link your NFTs for like one month, three months, six months, one year. Um, the longer you link, the more points you get. Um, and we're thinking, for example, let's say you link those ecosystem NFTs or tokens, uh, you get, let's say, uh, like a season pass NFT. And let's say a whale has like a hundred season pass NFTs every single season as like a reward. Um, and then if you have, let's say, we have two players that just open the game on their phone, have no idea about wallets or crypto, they just go into the game in a purchase, like a season pass, and then that just like, you know, sweeps the floor of, of all the season passes that are like maybe somewhere in the pool. So kind of like that money or like that, you know, fiat currency from the, uh, from the Web2 user uh, gets converted to, I don't know, ETH, USDC or an ecosystem token. And then, then, you know, purchases that season pass NFT, which gets redeemed and then goes into like the whale's pocket instead of like the studio's pocket. So that's kind of like how we envision a, a ref share model. That's like, you know, not directly ref share model. That's like still legal. Um, and because at the end of the day, like you might also want to ask like a studio, like, why would you want to do this? Why do you want to share revenues with like your engaged players? Um, I think for us, it's kind of like, um, it's like affiliate marketing on steroids. Like you have all these like super engaged folks doing content as, as Nick said, you want to like reward your content creators, your streamers, um, I don't know, guilt leaders and all that. Like they really are active on Twitter and in the trenches and doing like community events in their hometowns and, and countries. And I think you should reward them. Um, I guess, I mean, it goes to like a broader, you know, web three mindset. I think we all agree that you want to build a community, like a digital nation rather than, you know, a company and consumers. Like that's like what we're here for. So that's kind of like, you know, is, is our vision of like bridging the two in terms of financial incentives as well. Let's talk a little bit more about these differences. Um, because we like look at web two game economies, right? And what they do. And like, what would you say is something that we should learn from them? But then what are also the parts that we should do differently? Like forget about their learnings. Like some of the stuff is probably not applicable, right? So something like okay we we have like a different more community focused ua for example uh, or or anything else yeah what do you think like should we learn and what should we unlearn basically i have a short i spoke a lot so i'll have a short one in this one so i think 
what's good about web 2 games is that it's simple onboarding it's like easy to like play the game and spend the game i think web 3 games are too hard to like onboard and spend i think that needs to improve um what we need to forget from the web 2 space to the web 3 space is that i think the whole like you know the cost per install needs to be lower than lifetime value like that whole math i think doesn't hold in web 3 uh, what do they spend they they spend in terms of like bringing other users in in like long term secondary revenues and and whatnot i think we haven't cracked that math yet but i see a lot of folks in the web3 space still thinking about the whole cpi ltv calculation and i i don't like that yeah i'm curious to know what that uh, the new metric will be um cuz at the end of the day it is requiring you know people to come in to pay money to for the game or the ecosystem itself to make money um, because money doesn't come from nowhere. I completely agree that UA is going to be the, the main vector for, for growth and innovation because Web2 companies sometimes spend 50 to 80% of their operating revenue on UA. Um, and if you know Web3 can represent a new vector for UA and take money out of the hands of, say, advertisers and put it into the hands of players that are distributing the game to their friends, I think there's an opportunity there. Um, something that I think Web2 games really did right and it allowed it to become as massive as it is today is a super high reliance on data um, to drive decision making. I think that has taken a lot of fun out of a lot of games and uh, really turned it into more of a Skinner box. And so I'd say that that is something that needs to be forgotten as well. Um, but we just shouldn't forget every bit of it. I think there's pieces that are, are really positive about just understanding what drives continual adoption um, is super, super key. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I think my whole approach has been basically forget everything uh, from Web2 games uh, and just focus on open economy design. Uh, I mostly read uh, books from like the early 1900s to the 40s and 50s when they were trying to figure out how money worked originally. Uh, I think that's a really good place to start uh, for anybody else uh, who's looking to get into this uh, because they didn't know how it worked back then. <laughs> and I don't think we still know how it works today, uh, but they definitely figured a lot of things out. Um, so I like I like to focus on traditional economics uh, as much as I can. I, I'm, you know, I'm always kind of reading. A, I have a ton of books in my backlog, uh, but uh, Web2 Games, there is a lot to learn uh, in, in terms of what players value, I guess, uh, and how they value things differently uh, from the real world. Uh, so in terms of things like virtual cosmetics and stuff like that, like it doesn't have any, I mean, I guess there is some parallels, but um, I don't know, like one of my favorite games when I was a kid uh, was Diablo 2, right? And in Diablo 2, their soft currency, which was gold, was basically worthless, right? There's just, you do everything, anything you do, you get gold. Then you go to the NPC, you sell stuff, you get more gold. And then there's nothing to do with all the gold you get. But the thing that ended up being the actual currency was like Stone of Jordans or uh, was these things called high runes, which you could make the best items in the game with, right? Uh, and people use those as essentially a nominal unit of current currency or like a numerary, right? Um, so... Looking at examples like that, I think are super useful uh, because you can see why it works so well, the kind of utility that it had or the kind of demand that it had. Um, and so just, I guess, 
going back through traditional games and looking for those really special instances of where currency arise arose uh, when it wasn't intended to be a currency. Um, one other thing I would say is uh, a good mindset shift is in Web2, a lot of free-to-play designers think about time and like how much time somebody needs to spend in the game grinding. And then how does that relate to the amount of money that they would spend to save? And I think that works really, really well for a account-bound one-track mindset where you as an individual are going through an experience and progressing. Um, where it doesn't work is an open economy where everybody can be trading with each other or just purchasing things on a variable market. Um, and so any traditional free-to-play designer that's thinking about that needs to throw that rule out. They can't be thinking about like, how does this relate to time? Um, it needs to more relate to how does this relate to the demand experienced by the entire economy at any given time? Um, yeah, and that might deal with population sizes and might deal with total supply sizes of NFTs or tokens um, and where those sinks and faucets are coming from. Could you all share a little bit of the resources? So I have down like early 1900s books about traditional economics, traditional games, like anything else you're looking at. Um, yeah, would also be cool for the audience just to learn. Uh, yeah, look at the curve wars. Um, it's a difficult, thorny topic uh, in DeFi, but it's super fundamental to understanding liquidity and why liquidity matters. Um, it also teaches you a lot about um, like VE tokenomics, X tokens, um, staked tokens, the power of incentives, um, how tokens move across the ecosystem and why. Um, it gives you a pretty fundamental understanding of how tokens are traded. Um, and so if you're looking to just get a super high value learning piece that is really difficult to, to dive into, but it's useful to understand the curve wars. Nice one. Yeah, that's that's a really hardcore, but really, really good resource. I think if that that's like, you know, the end and boss of tokenomics, <laughs> if you understand this. Um I think in a bit more like light, you know, if 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 you're a bit more in earlier in your journey diving down the rabbit hole, I think just like pick a blockchain game that it, that you like, uh, get active there, play it, um, try to like break down the economy, figure out okay, we do all the where are the all the uh, faucets and sinks, where is the value accrual happening? understand over time what's been going right, what's been going wrong with it and understanding like how they reacted to it. I think Axie is still a great example because they have learned from their economy. They've been changing the ecosystem a lot since then. They've built a, a whole new revamped version of the game. Uh, they added now um, like Axie specific progression where you can like level up the actual Axies on chain actually, which is kind of cool. Um, just like understanding how they got there. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting um, because when you make certain decisions in games, you might not see it in week one or week two or even like month one or month two. Maybe you see it in like two, three years down the line. Um, so I think Axie is still a great example. Um, again, I'm biased here probably, but My Crypto Heroes, you know, back in like 2018 and 19 was the number one blockchain game. And with like, I think we had like 5,000 monthly active users back then, which was a lot, um, uh, you know, based on like how big the space is now. Um, and I think there also there's some good writings there as well, like what was the ecosystem about um, and why it eventually failed. Um, and yeah, I guess just generally like hanging out in Twitter spaces. Um, 
I would say there's still no real answers yet. So anything you read is just for inspiration. Like there are no experts. We are no experts either. We're just trying to figure this stuff out. Um, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So I think it's still a great time to get involved um, and, you know, learn and, and bring your unique perspective into the space um, and kind of, you know, co-learn with everybody. Yeah, I 100% agree with Michael. Uh, I'm definitely not an expert. Uh, I'm just trying to figure things out, as he said. Uh, everything I say is my opinion. <laughs> uh, and I will say that is a great approach. Uh, that's how I started uh, in this space. I was looking for answers. I was trying to solve problems uh, that current games had. And I thought I, you know, I figured, I think I figured out a way to solve a problem, right? And that's, you know, how I ended up working at Citadel. Um, the other thing I would say is you need context uh, when you're learning. Uh, I think a great way to do it is, I mean, at least for me, uh, having Citadel has been great, especially when I'm reading different things, because everything I read is in reference to Citadel. Uh, even if I'm reading an economics textbook, I'm still thinking about Citadel. Uh, in terms of every every single thing that I, I read. Um, so either come up with an idea yourself or get together with a group of people and come up with an idea uh, and then think about that idea every time you're looking at something else. Because uh, that'll give you a good frame of reference. It'll give you ideas uh, to how to do things to stabilize a currency or you know create intrinsic value or demand for, the, for a currency or any of these things. Uh, I think a great starting point is the Machinations Manifesto. Uh, you can just Google that. That's uh, in their articles. Uh, it's very simple, very straightforward, uh, written by Edward uh, Castronova. is one of the first virtual economists uh, studied like EverQuest, I think, back in the day. Uh, he has also got a great book called Virtual Economies, uh, which is a good primer on virtual economics. Uh, as I said before, uh, traditional economics books, pretty much anything you can read, just read it and then <laughs> refer it back to what you're trying to make. Uh, and that's it. Yeah. yeah, I really like your point um, about there was something you said right in the middle, right before Machinations Manifesto. I lost it because I was looking up Machinations Manifesto. Um, shoot, never mind. Uh, yeah, was, was it the having context uh, to your yeah, ideas? Yeah, that was that's exactly what it was. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of that too. It's it really helps to. I guess, ground your thoughts in no longer being in hypothetical land and more just like, okay, how would I actually do this? Um, and so I can't recommend that enough. Like come up with a game that you just start putting on paper and then start thinking about how you'd apply these concepts to your game um, and then share it with a couple other people. Like don't be worried about people stealing your idea because frankly, somebody else has that idea already. Um, this is kind of how innovation happens. Like. Lots of people read similar things, get inspiration from lots of different sources, and then come to conclusions and are freaked out when their conclusions are similar to another person's. It's like, no, that just means you guys are thinking similarly. Um, and it happens all the time in history. So don't be worried about people stealing your idea because somebody already stole your idea. And they're probably looking at you like, hey, why'd you steal my idea? So like, ideas are typically not novel. Um, share them. And, you know, keep improving because there's always the next idea. There's always the next innovation that you can build on top of. And the big innovations will come when all of these current innovations get to market. Some fail, some succeed, but then those ones that succeed will be remixed. And so I, you know, that's what I'm really excited about. Like that's where I think tokenomics is going is, you know, it's the composability, the Lego blocks, the idea that some will work, some won't. And the things that do work will be remixed again and again and again until we create something truly amazing.
Yeah, what what kind of innovations do you see like in the near term for tokenomics? I know like Michael, you using I think bonding curves for the crafting right now, right? For for the as, grenades as, or... as an experiment. Experiment, yeah. Okay. Again, like yeah. I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, I think for us, it's just also having fun and like experimentation and just throwing some things at the wall and see what sticks. Um, obviously, like only experiment with stuff that is reversible. So don't experiment with things that are irreverse, irreversible, um, which could mess up the entire economy. Um, yeah, I don't know if bonding curves are the, the you know the final answer to a lot of the problems. They may not. Um, I think there are some you know interesting things you could you could play with. Um, one thing that we're thinking about, and again, I think it's like mental models, like how do you approach NFTs? I think NFTs, you know, they have different rarities in a lot of games. Like for our game as well, there's like common NFTs, uncommon, uh, rare, epic, legendaries. Um, you just let the common NFTs be really common, like give a lot of them to players so that they can experience the feeling of owning assets, uh, play with wallets, have the the barrier to entry like really, really small, like let's say, I don't know, 50 cents or a dollar for the cheapest NFT. Um, but make sure that the you know very rare NFTs like legendaries are actually like valuable and that there's no inflation in those so that you no know, whales can buy them up and, and that's kind of like a different asset class, so to speak. Um just in terms of like innovation, I, I see some games playing with like export fees. So when you export an uh, like an asset as an NFT into your wallet from the game, uh it costs let's say 50 cents or a dollar um just to like make sure that the floor price uh, is kept on the marketplace. I think Axie does that with their runes. I think like the different rarity of the runes cost differently to like mint them to your wallet. Um, I think it's an interesting tool to kind of also monetize and have revenues for the studio. Um, but again, I think I'm actually really, that sounds bad, but like I'm actually really happy that the whole play to earn thing is dead. And a lot of you know studios raced with that promise. So now they have a lot of money and a lot of like brain power to like figure out something else. Um, so I want to see what that something else looks like. So that's why I'm also like super stoked to like see what the next few years bring in the space in terms of innovation. Um, yeah, I can uh, say. Um, so yeah, I think uh, gosh, I think there'll be a move towards really focusing on whatever currency is the medium of exchange, right? Because there's usually a, a one, there's usually two token or two asset ecosystems, right? So it's like an value accrual asset, and then there's the currency that's supposed to be used for trading and stuff. I think the currency that's going to be used for trading, people will move towards really focusing on making sure that they're stable, uh, in my opinion, to accrue liquidity uh, to a token, uh, you need to have stability. Uh, stability is probably the best thing you can do uh, for liquidity accrual over any kind of perverse incentive programs. Um, that and asset correlation, uh, so correlated assets, um, say I have Ethereum in the treasury and then somehow I correlate my currency to the Ethereum in the treasury. Uh, if the value is correlated to the Ethereum, uh, then people won't be afraid of impermanent loss, which means they'll be more willing to add more liquidity. Uh, if there's a lot of economic velocity, that means they're earning a lot of fees with basically no risk of impermanent loss, uh, which means lots of liquidity. I think adding in terms of liquidity here, uh, I like the liquidity pools for ERC-1155 tokens. I think there's folks at Skyweaver, they're building Nifty Swap. Um, and I think there's some other experiments out there. So just basically buying and selling ERC-1155 NFTs as if they were ERC-20 tokens um, and just kind of like tapping into an order book. 
Uh, I, I think we'll see more of these things um, just to kind of streamline liquidity uh, with NFTs. Uh, and yeah, so the other thing was, because uh, I think something that is known about, but sort of under underappreciated in the, like at least the GameFi space or crypto gaming space, let's say, uh, is uh, token uh, taxes or transaction uh, liquidity pool taxes uh, for tokens. Uh, I don't think they should just be, they should have some sort of design element to them. They shouldn't just be a 2% tax or 3% tax or something like that. And this is something uh, an economist named Tobin talked about back in the 80s. He came up with the idea for Forex taxes or foreign exchange currency taxes. Um, in this sort of world that we're going to be living in, I think in the future where all of these tokens are going to be very competitive, uh, you want to have a stable currency, right? You want people to feel confident holding it. And so the use of like something like a dynamic tax um, that starts after, you know, creating what's called a currency band. So like if my token is 10 cent, I want to keep it between 10 cents and 20 cents. I'll make the tax come into effect as soon as it leaves that range, right? Uh, and then it will scale parabolically essentially uh, until it comes back to the range and then the tax drops off. Um, so you, you essentially create a decentralized currency band through a dynamic tax. I think that'll be something we might see more of soon. I've got a question for you. Um, why not just use a stable coin um, instead of going through all the trouble to make your own native stable currency? Uh, this is kind of the same in, in real world economies. It'd be like, uh, why doesn't Mexico use the dollar? You know, they have more uh, control over economic policy. They can issue more money if they want to. Um, you know. It's more about the, the control of your currency. Um, so you want to you want to be able to stimulate the economy if you need to, or you know you you want to be able to modulate your economy as much as you can. You want to have as many levers at your control as you can. Uh, this is kind of like a lot of the issues with the eurozone. Uh, some of the economies when they move to the euro are not doing so well. Some of them are doing really well, right? So uh, not having this control over it. Uh, means that some economies will kind of be in, uh, what do they call it, uh, in like deflation, right? Uh, but it's not in their control anymore because now they're using the euro and they have to, you know, uh, submit to the the council of, you know, central banks in the eurozone. So, um, yeah, so having control of your monetary policy uh, is, is, I think, pretty critical. Uh, if you're not going to try to make your currency stable, then yeah, you should not have a, a soft currency. I, I don't think it's a good idea because uh, if it's not worth anything, people are going to think your game's less fun. I mean, it's just unfortunate. <laughs> Even if your game's super fun, if your currency is not worth a lot, people will be like, I'm going to go play the game that has the currency that's worth something that, you know, I can, uh, I mean, everything's going to be pretty financialized, I think, in the future. So. Yeah, to, okay. to, to sum that up, if you're not prepared to be your own central bank, um, maybe use a stable coin. But if you're if you're ready to take on the the challenge of fiscal and monetary policy, um, better to have native. Yeah, no, I like ETH better than stable coins. But yeah, Michael, sorry. <laughs> no, I just want to actually ask because we've been thought thinking about this as well for some time. Like, how do you react if the price falls below that certain threshold? in like a long over a long time um you can move the currency band uh or you know you can 
use liquid, like you can use ETH to stabilize the price if you want to. Uh, so that that's how like there would be like a currency board in like a developing country, let's say, that would handle that uh, automatically. We can do it automatically with smart contracts. Um, so you know we just have it have a pool of ETH that it has sitting aside to bring it back in, or you can make it a gain uh, in a sense. Uh, uh, you can have those taxes accrue to a reward pool and then players that issue transactions to bring the currency back into the currency band get rewarded from that pool. Uh, so you can, you can decentralize the incentives there um, and, and make it, make it fun in a sense. That's I cool. guess. Yeah. I think, I think making a game is, it's pretty cool. Um, I haven't thought about that. Like incentivize players who just like, if the price is low, just let them put in some ETH and give them a good uh, rewards for that. Um, Cause you, you can't keep deploying capital i mean we've seen that with luna and ust so i think it's 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 interesting if it's actually part of the gameplay which is another you know layer of fun that's cool yeah and the other thing is too if you do have like uh in our simulations like we've shown that the currency does tend to have like some sort of intrinsic value we call it entangled but it's sort of like entangled with the treasury value through the governance asset and so if there is sort of like this lower bound value, it'll at least bounce off of that at some point. Um, so that's like worst case scenario, but um, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of options. Once you, you know, once you start to think about things and like, I just want it to be stable. I don't want the number to go up because that's not a medium of exchange anymore. Number go up is a, you know, uh, a value approval token uh, and people will start hoarding it that's not what you want with a currency. You want people to use it. Uh, so, and to feel safe holding it for a long enough time that they don't just want to dump it for ETH or USDC right away. Cause that's, that's what happens. It's everything is competitive here. If, if I think the number, the token's going to go down even a little bit, I'm going to sell it right away. That's just, you're not a value extractor. You're just smart. Uh, so. To me, that's the, the biggest difference between crypto tokens, uh, the cryptocurrency markets and say for, for, foreign currencies. Um, you know, for example, going back to Mexico, if you got the peso, um, if you think that your peso is going to inflate or depreciate faster than say a dollar, it's actually quite difficult to, to swap out, especially because you need the peso to do your everyday life and you also need to pay taxes in the peso, right? But in crypto, everything's a trade-off. Um, and so, I'm actually postulating that it might be better for crypto tokens to be slightly deflationary rather than inflationary, especially if you have a monopoly over the ecosystem in which you would use the token. Because if you want the benefit of the token, the services, the game, whatever, you have to use the token. And so while it could be appreciating over time and you would be losing out on the appreciation if you spent the token in the present, um, you also would be barred from getting the benefits of spending that token in the present. So I am thinking that maybe native tokens not might might be better to be slightly deflationary in crypto in contrast to what typical currencies need in the real world um, because of the speed of the trade-offs. Yeah, that and that can be like a factor of demand, right? Uh, especially if you have like a bidding mechanic where people are super demanding uh, a certain asset, like our governance asset, if people are bidding a ton of the token that makes it deflationary uh, in a sense. Uh, I mean, we, we focus on the emission curve being 
a reducing curve. So we do want it sort of deflationary in a sense. I mean, of course, the, the supply is increasing, but the curve of emissions is decreasing. Uh, I think that that, that creates a, a much better than the, the parabolic increasing curve. But uh, sorry, guys, I have to stop you because we are over one hour. Uh, but it was a great discussion, and you the, li the listeners okay. love it. Come on. Yeah, I, I know they do. So maybe a second episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was great. And I give each of one, each one of you like 30 seconds to show whatever you like, show yourself, show your project. Sure. Uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, yeah, I hope you, I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Uh, I hope you took some nuggets away and, uh, frankly, I really hope you joined the space because the space needs more brilliant thinkers from lot, lots of different backgrounds, because that's what creates the, the innovation that keeps the space going. Um, if you're a game that's looking for you know, assistance with your economy or just looking for like an economic audit, um, something low format, um, yeah, reach out. I'm available for, for services. Um, I typically do only work with venture-backed games because I really hope to be changing the industry um, with some of the smartest people. But if you've got uh, if you got questions, I I'm usually quite responsive. So hit me up on Twitter or LinkedIn. It's at Metzler Games, M E T Z L E R, Games. Um, yeah, happy to uh, happy to hear your thoughts. Cool. Yeah, it was super fun to to chat with uh, both of you. I kept up with you as well, of course. Uh, about all these things. I think it's still early stages, um, so I think we're all learning from each other. Um, so if you want to, you know, jam on some things or have some questions, uh, feel free to reach out on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at marnold underscore mch. Um, and yeah, I'm building the game Mighty Action Heroes, which is an open beta, so you can play it uh, without any NFTs. Go check it out. Jump on our Discord. Give us feedback. Um, but you know, more importantly, check out different other games. Get a broad overview of the space. Try on-chain games. Try off-chain games. And most importantly, just have fun and learn and, and, and build more cool stuff together. Yeah, I definitely, I agree. Try everything. I think, you know, if you want to be part of the space, try all the games. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say, you know, look where other people aren't looking. Uh, I think that's in terms of becoming a game economist, I think, yeah, trying to find what other people aren't thinking about or try to try to think about things in a, in a unique perspective. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions, uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, hdaxos. I'm always available to answer any questions. Uh, or you can come ask me in the, the Citadel Discord, uh, discord.gg slash the Citadel. And thank you, Kepler, uh, for having me on. And I've really enjoyed talking with you, Michael and Nick. I think you guys have really, you guys have really good takes. Probably some of the best I've heard. So. Thanks. Same to you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed the time. And thank you, do sex yeah. now. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, uh, thanks a lot and, and see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Ex Dao podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, Nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research.